I appeal to you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no dissensions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. From the first epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. This morning we hear afresh the great proclamation of Jesus. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For those hearing that message for the first time, to proclaim a new kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, was to supplant the several kingdoms which had laid claim upon the people hearing that message. Obviously, this kingdom of heaven is no kingdom of earth. It is not the kingdom and empire of the Romans. It is not the kingdom of Herod or the kingdom of some would-be Messiah seeking to establish some kind of new administrative bureaucracy. It is entirely otherworldly in origin, and it has drawn near, staking a claim upon this earth and upon all people. The message of the Lord there in Galilee is not claim fealty to this emperor or that or to this religious system or that or pay tribute to this king or that. It is to say something quite different. Turn around. Repent. Turn from darkness and sin. Turn from the region and shadow of death to the marvelous light of God's coming to be with his people again. We see that this repentance looks, we see what this repentance looks like in the calling of the Lord's first disciples. They express this repentance in turning from their nets their daily occupations. And how many of us would say we need to repent of our daily occupations? Maybe there are some of you. Although I bet your uh, overseers would not be so proud, not be so glad of that, but that's another thing altogether. They turn from these their nets. They leave their nets, which are, by the way, amoral, and they follow Jesus. This is what the Gospels tell us about repentance. It is to leave what is not Jesus in turn to him. The sons of Zebedee leave not only their nets, but their own father behind. This shows forth the very words of Jesus. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. One of the toughest things a parent will ever have to do is say, I love you, but I love Jesus more to your own child. Also, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Repentance is not merely leaving behind the old life of sin and death, but also an embrace of a whole new order for one's life. Not upon the foundation of self-rule or the rule of some earthly king, 
but upon the total and unqualified lordship of Jesus. To do this is to join a new family, a new kingdom. And too, as those disciples join the Lord, the Lord's first and embryonic group of those whom he has called, they become the, the, the very foundation of the church. And it is on this that I want to focus this morning. The subject of repentance, not just in my life and in yours, but repentance and the life of the church. We don't often talk about repentance as a churchly or ecclesial act. We seem to never mention either the fruit of repentance as being a benefit to all Christians, nor do we seem to mention the need to repent for the sake of the church's unity. But the Apostle Paul, in today's reading from 1 Corinthians, addresses a church divided by sin and quarrel, and he points out the essential problem. It is not a problem of a difference of opinion. It is a problem of discipleship to Jesus. And he asks this question, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? It's rather a hilarious thing. He's like, I'm glad I baptized none of you but this. Oh, and I might have baptized those people too. But it doesn't matter. The point is still the same. This is classic Paul. Paul understands. He's pointing out something very important. That the Christian's fealty is to Christ. And by extension to the church, his body. Paul understands that at the most basic level, repentance is not merely a personal exercise undertaken for one's own benefit or health or the eternal condition of one's soul, but a mark of allegiance to Christ and membership in his body. He mentions the crucifixion and the passion saying, was Paul crucified for you? Because there are some in the church in Corinth who claim ultimate allegiance to Paul above Christ. And to Paul, this is inimical to Christian discipleship, which must only be lived out in obedience to Christ himself, who is the king of all, to whom every knee must bow and obey and every tongue confess. And he points, not surprisingly, to baptism which for Paul is always an image of this new life of discipleship. He says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Because baptism is that sacramental entrance into this new life of grace and obedience. I mean, look at what happens in a baptism. Do you renounce Satan and all his works? Our renunciations followed by the pronunciations of the faith. And one can certainly doubt that it was any different in the first century. Wrapped up in all of this is a rather distinct understanding of the church as the body of Christ, the body of all those who have put on the life of Jesus, the immortal life of the redeemed. For Paul, it is this glorified life of the Christian lived out as a member of the church, a life which is not merely human, but also a divine life 
which sets apart Christians precisely as members of the body and as stewards of the mysteries of God. Paul knows this because it is what he became when the risen Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus. The Lord did not call him to a kind of individualized personal conversion to leave behind his life of murdering Christians. In fact, there's no mention of it except, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He doesn't say, stop persecuting Christians. He calls him to a new life. And according to the Lord's own words, that Paul will be his emissary to the nations. He is to bring the message of the gospel to the nations. But immediately after this event, Paul is baptized by an unlikely man there in Damascus by Ananias. The first words out of Ananias' mouth are, Brother Saul. Brother family of God enjoys a status different from any other society and that the head of the family is no mere human being but the incarnate son of God who imparts his divine life to his church such that she is not merely an organization but an organism with a life and a calling She is the bride, meaning that she has received the Lord, her husband, into her life. And I know that this is scandalous to modern sensibilities about marriage, but she lives out this shared life, this companionship through her obedience. But as anyone who's been married for very long understands, the obedience of marriage is that of self-denial. In fact, if anybody ever tells me, I'm in a marriage and my husband tells me, do this, do this, and do that, my immediate thought is, you live in an abusive marriage. That's not obedience. Obedience is self-denial, self-emptying. And this is why Paul describes the death of the cross as a death of obedience. Listen. He says in Philippians chapter 2 that the Lord emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became what? Obedient unto death, even death on a cross. C.S. Lewis once wrote about why people fail at love, saying, you do not fail in obedience through lack of love but have lost love because you never attempted obedience. To be obedient to Jesus, to be obedient, again, meaning to pour out your life for his bride, the church, does not mean a blind following of rules, the church's canons, expectations, As anyone can see, these are usually quite few. It is rather to crucify our own desires and sacrifice ourselves to the benefit of the bride. It means that we undertake repentance not merely for our own benefit, but for that of others. That we seek out obedience to Christ not merely for ourselves, but for others, those who are sitting right next to us Sunday after Sunday, for our brothers and sisters, and by extension, 
to the whole world. To Paul, this is the scandal of a church body divided by partisanship, divided by differences of mind, divided in faith, and divided by differing allegiances. That they are unwilling to sacrifice their lives for each other, even in the day-to-day. Friends, you know, that is often what people tell me, and I know it myself, is the power of a good confession. I realize that I do not simply sin against myself, but against the church. And therefore, the church must absolve me in some sort of way. The church must lead me back to Christ. The church must pledge her prayers to my sanctification that I may, as one of her members, partake of her divine life again. In the same way, when I receive the Eucharist, I do so not only for my own benefit, which is immense, immeasurable, but for the benefit of the whole church. When even a very few Christians celebrate the Lord's death and resurrection in this way, when they participate in his body and blood, it is not a benefit to them alone, but to the whole church and indeed to the whole world. We must have that perspective this morning, friends, that we do this not just for ourselves, but for the whole. We should be here as much for the city of Waco and for the state of Texas and for our nation and for our world as much as we do it for ourselves. And the same is true of repentance. We can repent on someone else's behalf even. This vicarious principle means that the obedience and repentance of one is a benefit to all. When you repent, you ask for the Lord's grace. When you recommit yourself to faithful obedience and thereby learn evermore to truly love Jesus, it is of great benefit to me. We know this because Christ himself became obedient unto death. His obedience showing not only his great love for the Father, but his great love for us. And indeed, that gift did not remain of benefit for him alone, but for those who found membership in his body by his calling. Those first disciples, in leaving their nets, in leaving their old lives, did so not to their own benefit, but to that of the whole church, then so very small. It is for this reason that I want to encourage you in the work of repentance and obedience to Christ for the sake of the whole body of the church, so divided, so in need of a dynamic witness today. Last week I was able to walk around that medieval city of Assisi, a very moving experience. 
St. Francis understood that the task of rebuilding the church was a task which depended first upon repentance, radical obedience to Christ. And this movement, originating from a most unlikely man in a most unlikely place, carried out the greatest reform which has ever been seen in the church and the greatest flourishing of faith and sanctity since the ancient church. So the first call is this. Take repentance seriously. If you are in some kind of continual sin that you do not seem to be able to shake, know that your love for the Lord is flagging not because you lack in love, but because you lack obedience. And the place to start is in confessing your sins. Asking the Lord to grant you his life and his grace to pour out your own life on his altar and ask for a new one. And maybe you won't do it for yourself, but maybe you do it for me. Maybe you do it for your family. Maybe you do it for the stranger sitting next to you. Second, I want to make the call this morning to take the familial relationships which you have, especially in this church, seriously enough to repent of your failings towards others and to ask your brothers and sisters for their forgiveness. I get the sense, and I know you do too, that the Lord is about a great work among us at Christ Church. And past experience tells me that there is no more sure way for the enemy to sink it than to stir up quarrels and distrust among us. Even if you only suspect that you have wronged a fellow Christian, all the more reason to beg their forgiveness. And if you're experiencing hardness of heart towards a brother or sister, do let it go. Pray for the grace to be softened, for the grace to truly love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.